This is Climate Justice, y'all, a podcast dedicated to lifting up and centering the climate and environmental justice movement in the South. Despite the South being the most biodiverse, diverse, and one of the largest economic engines in the world, we are underfunded and often barred from the decision-making table. Because of that, we decided to pull up a chair and amplify the stories of communities in the South hit the hardest by the climate crisis. We're using good old-fashioned storytelling to shine a spotlight on these Southern leaders from all walks of life, putting in their blood, sweat, and tears to transform the region. The usage of y'all in the title is on purpose. We are honoring our Southern heritage of creativity, resilience, and ingenuity. All right, y'all, it is season two of Climate Justice Y'all. Let's get started. I'm your host, Abigail Franks. So Appalachia and the South in general is ground zero for looking at the repercussions and present impacts of unjust economic, social, and environmental systems and policies, with a prime example being the catastrophic floods that hit the region in the summer of 2022. This region is also the perfect opportunity to push for a just transition, to advocate for better and humane infrastructure, and to look for ingenious solutions from these communities that can apply both to the local and federal levels. Today, we are joined by two folks named Adam Hughes and Chauncey O'Dell, who work with, quote, the Community Union, also known as SOCOM, and the Alliance for Appalachia. In this episode, we'll talk about the importance of remembering the past, fighting for justice in the present, and reimagining the future. Climate justice, y'all, it's real, it's here, and it's about time we listen to folks like Adam and Chauncey about the importance of address transition for the South and Appalachia. Thanks, let's get started with the show. All right. Good morning. Good morning, Chauncey and Adam. How are y'all doing? Um, despite the recent floods and everything, how are y'all doing in this moment? Um, good and, and grateful to be here, Abigail. Thank you. Yeah, I'm doing really well. And of course, our, our thoughts and our hearts are with people in, in eastern Kentucky right now. Yeah, uh, listeners, we were talking just before the podcast <clears throat> because there were recent floods in Kentucky and Tennessee and Appalachia in general. And we talk about, I got a frog in my throat, but we talk about how climate change seems like it's far in the future, but Chauncey and Adam were talking about how it's definitely here now, Um, which is why I'm so, so, so glad to have them on this podcast because they really know what they're talking about when it comes to what the South and specifically Appalachia needs in order to transition into a just and sustainable region. But first, before we jump too ahead of the game and put the cart before the horse, how about y'all introduce yourselves and your organizations and where y'all are based? We can start with Chauncey and the mood, Adam. Great. Um, Well, hi, Um, my name is uh, Chauncey. I um, am a member of uh, SOCOM, which is um, community organizing group here in East Tennessee. Um, SOCOM stands for um, Statewide Organizing for Community Empowerment. And once upon a time, it also stood for Save Our Cumberland Mountains. So we'll get into that um, history as well. And um, I uh, am a testament to um, Adam's power as an organizer. Um, because uh, I've been a member of SOCOM and then uh, an umbrella organization called Alliance for Appalachia. And through that work, um, uh, the Alliance, Adam, uh, I was moving back to Tennessee uh, from a decade of living in Southern California. And Adam's like, well, hey, if you're coming back home, uh, here's a way to uh, 
uh, you know, really get started. And um, and I want to say also the the Alliance for Appalachia is a really um, beautiful example of regional cooperation and collaboration when facing um, you know, the generational uh, corporate extraction that um, Appalachia in particular has faced uh, for certainly uh, since uh, the, uh, you know, 19th and 20th centuries. So, um, all right, uh, I'll hand it to Adam. Yeah, my name is Adam Hughes and I use he, him pronouns. I guess I in turn am here um, thanks to, to Chauncey's passion and intelligence and, and strong moral sense that's continued to, to inspire me to stay involved with the Alliance. I have been Sockham's East Tennessee organizer for almost eight years now. Um, I live in Knoxville, but work mostly throughout East Tennessee, Cumberland County, Campbell and Claiborne County, Anderson County. Um, not as much in Chattanooga yet, but we're continuing to expand our membership in geographic base after 50 years. And I am a former steering committee member of the Alliance for Appalachia and a member of the Alliance's federal team. And I've helped to coordinate and attend trips to, to Washington DC in the past to, to do lobbying on a federal level. That is amazing. Thank you all so much. And listeners, that doesn't even begin to outline everything these people do for the climate movement and especially for Appalachians in general. Um, so thank you all so much. So first, before we keep like going on and talking about, so this episode is about the like reimagining the present and the future, but we also must ground ourselves in the past and how that's impacting us so far. So could y'all expand more about Sockham? why it was formed, and also what Alliance for Appalachia does, like what type of programmatic work y'all do. Yeah, Sockham was founded in 1972. It was founded as Save Our Cumberland Mountains, and it was founded by people who lived in the coal-producing communities of East Tennessee, um, the mountain communities who were concerned about the threats to their health, their safety, their property through surface coal mining and who believed in, in working together um, to grow power and, and to try to affect the policy that would impact their communities to try to deal with this terrible form of surface mining. Um, very early on, a lot of the members were coal miners themselves. Um, many of them were United Mine Workers. Um, I remember speaking to our founding our executive director, um, Maureen O'Connell, who mentioned that she had members who would refer to Sockham as their community union for years after its founding. They were oh. naturally inclined to the idea that you work together to improve your life because they had done it for UMWA. Um, so it's a really powerful story to take um, for me. And even though our work is statewide, I always say that our work hasn't changed. It's just expanded. Um, we expanded out in the early 90s. Um, particularly important was allying with an organization that was mostly black members in West Tennessee called Jonah, which was based in Jackson, Tennessee. And I believe in 1991, they became Sockham's first West Tennessee chapter, um, first non-majority white chapter. And that led to the process where eventually so much of our work was outside of the Cumberland Mountains that we really couldn't keep the same name, which wouldn't reflect the diversity of work. So we became 
statewide organizing for community empowerment, kept the acronym and changed the name. And yeah, since then we have um, been a multiracial organization, one dedicated to the cause of racial justice and equity. And in fact, our, our newest chapter, um, the McMinn County chapter, um, incorporated, I think, just in the last couple of months. Um, they were motivated by what you might have heard, the the, the banning of the book Mouse um, through the McMinn County School Board. Um, people got together to talk about their problems with local education and wanting to strengthen education. And it became a really natural fit for them to become a Saucon chapter from there. So after 50 years, we're still expanding still learning more about the importance of community organizing in East Tennessee. And yeah, we'd love to meet more people who are interested in, in working with us. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I, uh, um, I always love hearing the, the history, um, of the 50 years of Sockham. Um, cause it, it, uh, it reminds me of, um, <clears throat> the, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the Mr. Rogers quote about, um, always looking for the helpers. And, um, there's something about knowing that, um, on one hand, it can feel intractable and overwhelming to know that, um, these sorts of systemic issues, um, morph and change shape, uh, over the years. And at the same time, um, it's just beautiful to see the, the, the evolution, the handoff, as Adam explained, the expansion of this understanding of, um, yeah, community unions, um, and um, and the 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 uh, the regional group, the Alliance for Appalachia, um, that um, we're also members of, uh, is shares with Sockham the philosophy of giving people the dignity of being experts of their own experience. And certainly um, the Appalachian region is no stranger to being told uh, by outsiders or by the national politics that um, we are not the experts of our experience, um, other people know better, and that um, even if the resources here um, have some utility, well, they um, rarely the benefits of that stay in this in our communities, you know, so. Um, yeah, I, first of all, I, community union is a terminology that I've never heard before and I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> Thank you for introducing that to me. Um, and I really, the philosophy of folks not needing the science to know the truth of environmental justice issues is so important because I think that's one of the challenges that I don't know about y'all in Tennessee and Kentucky and stuff, but down here in Alabama, it's kind of hard to convince people that they know their experience better than outsiders do, or that like, you know, big companies or scientists or whoever knows more about their experience than they do. So thank you so much, Chauncey, for bringing that up. That's amazing. Can y'all expand on what it looks like for, you know, to rely on that a very important philosophy like there's a huge misconception that people can't be experts in their environmental slash community experience without credentials so what does living by that philosophy look like for y'all especially at y'all's organization um well i'd like to say like that that this isn't this is an and a little bit you know right in terms of like science is 
wonderful, right? Data is excellent, helpful. It demonstrates what's happening. It is foundational for research, long form record of things happening and policy. And, and we probably all have the experience of expertise can be a dodge and a way to dismiss the lived experience of people. Certainly this is the history of Appalachia. Y'all are too, y'all are poor and dumb genetically and you can't understand what's going on, right? And that that is not necessarily the message that everyone gets, but, but I think um, certainly like the idea that um, expertise comes from um, the outside instead of being like, um, I don't need someone to tell me that my soil is poison, my water is poison, my children are getting sick, that my my that I'm getting cancer. However, the science is really helpful to be like, these are all the ways that I'm getting sick and this is who's at fault. And so one of the things that I think is really wonderful in both um, the Alliance member groups and in Sockham in particular is um, kind of creating that um, <clears throat> you know, collaboration between, um, you know, it is the, uh, the, uh, the, sometimes the, uh, the corporations or the powers that be are like, well, we'd love to help you out. And, and, and we do admit we're fault, but, but we need y'all to prove it. And so what's so lovely is to have like, uh, you know, scientists and everybody to be like, okay, here's our science. Here's the data we've collected either through our grassroots groups or different things like that. All right, here's the proof now give us the money you owe us for all of the damage that you've done type thing. And um, and I've seen certainly in my experience, um, uh, Adam in particular does such a wonderful job of um, bolstering people who um, can be easily intimidated that because they haven't left the place where they're from or because they don't have certain degrees that they can't speak with ultimate authority because they're the ones living there. They're the ones dealing with it day to day. They're the ones that understand like what has changed over time. Their families have been there. What has changed over time, you know? So, um, all right, I'll give some space for Adam to speak on that. Yeah, and <laughs> let me jump in real quick. I, the it's a both and situation and you really hit the nail on the head. That's brilliant, thank you. All right, Adam, sorry, <laughs> you jump in. Yeah, no, I, I agree with Chauncey so much. To me, it's important to emphasize that science is for everyone. That to be a scientist is not something that's conferred by a credential, but it's something that's conferred by being willing to take an inquisitive approach to your own life and being willing to to take this kind of analytical framework for for how you're viewing the world and i'll give a really good example of that um Sokka members who have organized um through the tennessee appalachian community economics or, or tennis project put together i think a good six years ago now a cl the clear fork water monitoring project um and this was a project of people who were living in a community that's been impacted by coal mining going out every single month and doing recordings of the water quality near their near their houses, um, testing pH, total suspended solids, conductivity, 
and working with um, Matt Hepler from Appalachian Voices, who actually is someone who has some level of science credentials, but knows that community is so important and putting community first to uh, actually get those samples run. And through this, the amazing coordinators of the water monitoring project, um, April Jiraki, who's a Sockham board member, um, DJ Coker, who's, who's been involved and been highlighted in the media before, um, they have learned so much about water science and they've been able to give workshops to other people. Um, their expertise has gone throughout Appalachia through the Alliance's um, grassroots enforcement team where folks gather from across the region to talk about citizen science and to talk about um, how they brought water monitoring into their own communities and how they do it with a real ability to, to draw definitive statements. This is not people who are coming out testing their water. These are people who have come and, and really taken the time to learn um, how to keep their own communities safe. Um, we recently had a water testing day in Anderson County. We took a lot of the lessons that the, uh, the folks behind the Clear Fork Water Monitoring Project have, have taught us and been able to go to this community that's impacted by coal act and go to the rivers outside of the Bull Run coal plant and actually sample the water. People for decades in that community have wondered what the impact of coal ash is. And because people are experts in their own lives, um, I think they knew that they had real concerns, but being able to give someone who's grown up in that community the tools to actually know what's in their own water and the people in that community stepping up and taking the time to, to learn how to do it and taking the time to, to go out on a hot day and collect samples, there's nothing more powerful than that. And that to me is science at its best when it's something that benefits a positive vision of humanity, when it's something that is for everyone and when it's something that enhances and not attempts to replace the lived experience that people have. Period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was jumping and clapping and I, you know, so for me, I mean, everything that you just said reminds me of how I didn't realize that I grew up in an environmental injustice community, like dealing with pollution until I moved to Birmingham and realized that it was a systemic issue rather than just a specific community issue. And so everything y'all are saying is just warming my heart and preaching to the choir, that's for sure. But sorry, Chauncey, you look like you're gonna jump in. Oh no, I'm just um, nodding an acknowledgement of um, of that. And I love, um, yeah, that's one of the, the great things about being in communication and in conversation with people is the, realizations that they're having in real time, you know, and how um, it is, uh, yeah, really beautiful when we can contextualize um, what's happening um, and and know that we're not um, isolated or alone in these things and that there is, there is some agency, you know. Um, I think um, one of the things that can feel really overwhelming or certainly a reason that I um, did not um, maybe prioritize environmental justice um, uh, because it felt just too scary, you know? And so, um, yeah, so thank you also for providing this uh, platform so everybody can be uh, in communication with each other about um, what these iterations of these things are everywhere. 
Yeah, it is scary, but at least we have each other, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I want to note that it's ultimately, I don't think science is the be all and end all here. I think if someone uh, doesn't want another community's coal ash being dumped on them, like happened in Uniontown, Alabama, where they shipped down the coal ash from Kingston, Tennessee, the response is not. Well, according to our testing, there's so many parts per million of coal ash in your water, and this is safe for consumption on a 40-year framework because X or Y. The response is no. If this is getting polluting your clothes, polluting your house, if this stinks, if this is ruining the community that you grew up in, you are, should be in control of your own community. You should have the right to say, we don't want this. and. I think the science should be in service to that, not the other way around. Here, here. Well, you know, honestly, that brings up a really good point that like, just because it is legally okay, or it's like technically safe, it doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> and like, that just shows the importance of, for one, having policies that genuinely protect people and two, to have policies that are willing to adapt and take the human experience into consideration rather than just like the data says it's safe to drink this nasty smelling kind of gross looking water. So you should be fine, right? <laughs> and like, I say all that because y'all are working on something called the Environmental Justice for All Act, I think. And could y'all talk more about that and talk about how it impacts Southerners in general? Oh, yeah. Um, so um, the Environmental Justice for All Act is um, it's a well, it's currently a, a House uh, resolution, a House bill. Um, and for uh, the policy wonks, um, if you want to Google H.R. 2021 um, and see this um, just unbelievably like expansive um, ambitious and, and, and I feel like really wonderful attempt, um, to, um, basically keep, um, grassroots, uh, organizations and communities in conversation with each other about proving the entire chain and life cycle of pollution and extraction. And, um, it is, um, it is, uh, well, I want to make sure I, 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 I um, give credit to um, the two um, House representatives who have um, sponsored this bill and have moved it through um, different administrations. Um, and that is um, Representative and House Natural Resources Committee Chairman um, Grijalva and um, Representative McKeachin. And, um, and right now, um, EJ for All, like within the last couple of weeks, just passed um, committee approval, which means that it is one step closer to becoming law. And um, what this law will do is, 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 um, there's a lot of different iterations of it, but one of the one of the big things that's exciting in terms of like environmental justice in particular is this idea of um, of holding um, corporations and different things responsible for the cumulative impacts of pollution. Because one of the insidious things that happens, and um, and Adam can speak more to this in detail, is um, just basically isolating uh, each one of these. Um, 
things, whatever is whatever the externality is of um, of extracting resources, and then acting like well, it's just this one community that gets affected. Or um, I might hand this to Adam to demonstrate in the life cycle of coal, but it's not just like strip mining actually isn't the the only part of 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 the coal mining chain, right? It's it's the strip mining then it's the emissions, then it's the coal ash, then it's all of that. So, um, um, Adam, how how would you um, kind of frame how environmental justice for all might help um, in Tennessee in particular um, now that we're kind of a post-coal? Uh, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, I think this is kind of where an organization like the Alliance for Appalachia, or I should say a coalition like the Alliance for Appalachia is so important. I think Sockham's work has historically been so locally focused, as have so many other amazing groups throughout Appalachia, the Southern Appalachian Mountain Stewards, the Center for Coalfield Justice, um, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, um, Coal River Mountain Watch, um, organizations that are founded on this principle of real grassroots organizing and I think the kind of one flaw in that approach is that there are some problems that are so vast that they kind of require federal intervention. Um, and that's why the Alliance for Appalachia was formed in 2006, so that these small grassroots groups could have a space where they're in communication with larger regional groups like the Sierra Club, and Appalachian Voices, that we could work to bring these problems from a super local level all the way up to uh, to the halls of Congress. And literally, I saw Alliance members lobbying for seven years on getting more funding to clean up old abandoned mine lands, starting in 2015 with a project they put together on uh, the drawbacks of the abandoned mine lands fund, going to Washington, D.C. time and time again. We met with Congress people in our home districts. Um, we did webinars. We kept pushing and pushing for expanded funding, and that eventually culminated in $11.3 billion of additional AML funding that came through uh, the infrastructure bill towards the end of last year. So I think that's a real justification for this approach that our problems are local and our problems are, are kind of shared with everyone. And I think that begins to, to answer that question about what would environmental justice for all mean? I think we need to look at environmental justice and coalfield justice as a real um, holistic problem. It's one that impacts the communities that are being mined in. It's one that, that impacts communities all around them that don't get to have a diversified economy because they're dealing with all of the infrastructure challenges that come with a single economy, a, a coal-focused economy. Um, so it, it impacts people in places like Campbell and Claiborne County, where there's still active coal mining in Tennessee. And then the coal burning side, we still have, coal, I think, three active coal-fired power plants in Tennessee. Um, the one is on a retirement schedule and the other two soon will be. Um, and and then it, it continues through the process of disposing the coal ash, which is a perpetual problem for us um, because a lot of these coal-fired power plants sit on rivers um, in Bull Run in Claxton. The 
coal ash impoundment sit below the water table. So I think there's like 14 feet below the, into the groundwater. And we know from the Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation presenting it, that there have been multiple um, heavy metals that have gotten into the water there. So pulling this all together, I think the Environmental Justice for All Act is important because it actually begins viewing environmental justice as a holistic problem that requires solutions on every step of the process. Thank you, Adam. And I'm gonna, okay, I'm gonna probably show my ignorance here, but whose idea was it to put these massive polluting industries next to our water sources? Like, uh, <laughs> I don't know if, Maybe, maybe there's a reason for it, but to me, it just seems short-sighted, but you know, whatever. I don't want to go, <laughs> I don't, I was just kind of yelling into the void for a second, but <laughs> you know, like that's Adam and Chauncey, what y'all are saying about like how some problems like environmental injustice needs to be dealt with on the local and federal level. And that's so important. And it makes me think of these, you know, like massive legislations, like the new deal, green new deal, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act just passed Senate. You know, we'll see if it actually goes through the House. Um, but, you know, things like that, it kind of, it's all tying together, especially into the theme of this episode, which is reimagining the present and the future. 